I'm a corporate America dropout, man. I I built a $20 million division for a Fortune 550. And in doing that, I got the grand opportunity of laying people off two years in a row. I'll never forget that day when I asked myself the question, is this it? Is this all there is to strive for in life? That day, I set out on a journey to find more. Now, I am sitting down with the most fulfilled to teach us the tools and tips they use to get there so we can do it faster. Think different, earn different, live fulfilled. This is Contrarian Cashflow. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome into Contrarian Cashflow. I've got the one and only Jerome Myers with me today. What's up, man? How are you doing? John. Let's get this show on the road, baby. Contrary and cash flow, we're here and we're ready to go. Let's do it. Let's do it. So everybody knows Jerome, multifamily investor here in the great state of North Carolina. But uh, outside of that, Jerome, what are you working on right now? Man, everything. We got 120 unit development on the way. Still focused on operating those properties that we've purchased over the past few years, trying to make sure that they're performing at an optimal level in the period of crisis, man. So... That's really what we have going on and ramping up some more of the education stuff. I I think I'm getting really sick on my stomach the more I hear about educators taking advantage of multifamily investors. And so we want to provide them some hardcore resources so that they have what they need in order to get these deals done. Talk is cheap, right? Talk is cheap. I think so. (laughs) All right, man. So obviously the contrarian part of this is I want to hear your journey. I want to hear your story. So you have a master's degree in engineering. I mean, you're a super educated dude. How are you in multifamily now? What's what's the deal? Yeah, I'm a corporate America dropout, man. I, I built a $20 million division for a Fortune 550. And in doing that, I got the grand opportunity of laying people off two years in a row. The first time I did it, I said I would never do it again. It was one of the worst experiences of my life and something that I can still consider to be traumatic. The second time I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so I left corporate America, went and beat on the door of about 10 different banks, asking them to give me a loan on multifamily. And they all told me I didn't have the right experience. So I appreciate you saying I'm educated, but I certainly wasn't qualified enough to buy a deal when I left corporate America to try to get into this multifamily space. So what was that what was that journey like? I mean, so you just said, hey, one day, hey, you know, I just can't take laying these people off anymore. This is getting too tough. I'm gonna go buy apartment buildings. Like, where was your mind at? How how'd you make it through all that? Well, it was a arduous process, right? <laughs> Gotta use my vocabulary words since you said I'm educated. But the fact of the matter was I always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And if I took it all the way back, sophomore year in college, Duran and I were sitting on the stoop. And we were both engineering students. So we did the math, man. I was paying $3.95. So was he. We both had two roommates doing the same thing. We multiplied it out across the complex. Guy was making seven hundred grand a year. We never seen him. We never talked to him. I was like, I can live off of $700,000. I don't even need seven hundred. Give me seventy, and I'm okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm the son of a stay-at-home mom and a soldier. Nobody was coming to our house talking about multi-million dollar apartment ownership. The best thing that we could do is buy a house, right? So we didn't know how to get into the game. So we finished our degrees and went to corporate America, got some money, got some credit, got some experience in the workforce. And I, I thought this was a perfect launching point. It's like, I've come to a place where I figured out that going and getting great grades Getting into a good school, going to get a job and working for 40 years wasn't the path that I actually wanted to go down. And so 
I exited with the ambition of making a big impact in a space where, you know, our dollars can make a, a big impact in people's homes and in their lives. And so, look, man, when I was knocking on the doors at those banks, they said, look, you're, you're not qualified. I said, what do you mean? I got an engineering degree and I've got my professional license. Yeah, that doesn't matter. I got an MBA. Yeah, so what? Project management professional, Six Sigma Black Belt. Does any of this resonate with you? No. You haven't bought a property of similar size and executed a business plan before. He said, well, how do you do that? If you haven't actually ever done it before. And it's like, find a partner that's done it and then we'll work with them. And so I had to go fix and flip houses, John. And there was nothing more like having a job than going to fix and flip houses. I was working with folks who weren't very highly educated and they were always, it felt like they were always trying to take advantage of me. It was super frustrating. And I was like, I'm looking for something that's a whole lot more sophisticated. So I never really gave up on the multifamily thing. I just didn't have the people in my network to be successful at it. Fortunately for your listeners, right, they can get access to those people by hitting up the people that come on your show or buying a course or going into one of these conferences that are all over the country now. But for me, I didn't even know that stuff existed, man. So it was a school of hard knocks. Eventually, I found podcasts and started listening to those. I think I listened to every episode of Michael Blank's podcast. I just went to zero and came back. And then I started looking at videos. And then I found other podcasts. hosts. I was like, oh, I like this. And so at one point, I was listening to like 40 hours of content each week, John. Like 40 hours of content. Because I didn't want to mess it up, right? And then I was fortunate enough. I was sitting on the stoop. The stoop's important for me, man. And this guy pulled up. He was like, hey. Let me check out your finishes on this one because we're going to do one down the street. I was like, sure, come on in, man. And we go start walking through and then he starts asking questions. He's like, hey, do you know anything about that building? It's like, that one? Yeah, I wanted to buy that one. I tried four or five months ago. The banks wouldn't win. He said, well, I'm going to make an offer on it today. Like, dude, you're the guy I've been looking for, right? You're, you're the experienced guy. Like, don't leave me out. I want to be in. He's like, well, what are you going to bring to the table? I said, I don't know. I'll figure something out, but don't leave me out of the deal. And sure enough, he went and made the offer without me, John. Fortunately, it got rejected. And so he went and talked to a guy that I used to lend money to when I was in corporate America on, in his fix and flip business. And he's like, yeah, Jerome brought that up back in January. And if he does a deal, I'll do it. If he's not in the deal, I'm not going to do it. So that got me a seat at the table. We added on a property manager as a partner, added in the broker. And so it was a band of the five of us going to take down this 23 unit. And we bought from a big brokerage house and they always do these press releases, right? You got to get pub, you got to get pub. And they wrote the article. I was asset manager on the deal. And so I got the opportunity to be in the paper, And all of those loan officers are cruising the papers looking for people who've done deals. And all of a sudden, the Myers Development Group and Jerome Myers were movers and shakers in the market. And they wanted to know what else we had in Pipeline because they'd be glad to refinance the deal we just bought or lend on something new. And I didn't know anything more than I knew the day before, right? And I still wasn't qualified because I hadn't actually executed. But because I signed that loan, I was in the game now. And so fast forward, we took those relationships and brought them down to Greensboro. And we've been buying deals here ever since and really want to be the market maker in Greensboro in about an hour and a half around. 
awesome. That's awesome. I mean, one of the points that I was curious about is I think you made it seem very simple, right? You know, I mean, oh, you know, you got turned down a couple times, but I think you glossed over a little bit on how that challenge was getting from corporate dropout into multifamily ownership. Can you put a little bit more commentary around, you know, how you had to push through and, and the struggles that you had in that scenario? Oh, I mean, it just goes one after the other, right? So now you're just happy to be here when somebody's willing to partner with you on a deal, right? Because without them, you don't have a way in. But at least one of the guys in the group didn't respect me at all. Like, we're trying to put the plan together. We've got what we thought was a pretty sophisticated construction project. We're doing roofs and siding and parking lots, landscaping, taking walls out. These are townhome units. Um, redoing... Uh, adding laundry rooms and bathrooms on the first floor on the slab. So we're using jackhammers to get this stuff in and people are saying, well, Jerome, if you don't put your money in today, then we'll just fund your portion and leave you out of the deal. After I put all this work in and put the plans together and help get through the approval process with the bank, you know, I'm still working on my fix and flip projects. And so they're going haywire. I got cash deployed there. I've got, this property where we're finding out things as we go along. I mean, let's just talk about this project as a disaster, right? So we saw that one of the buildings, the foundation had sunk a little bit and we didn't really put it two and two together. But when we walked in the units, we saw that the cabinets were stained and like, Oh, that's weird. And then we finally put it together after the plumber said, Hey, you got to replace the whole main sewer line for this building. What do you mean? Well, when the building sunk, it snapped the pipe. And so what was damaging the cabinets was sewage. And it's not only backing up in the kitchen sink, but in the shower and everywhere else. So you got to pull the whole thing out. That's 30 grand mistake, right? Wow. If you're doing a project on fix and flip for a single family home, you underestimate the HVAC. That thing, let's say you put in $3,000, but it's a $5,000 expense. whoop de do you know, extra two grand, we'll figure it out. You probably have some contingency money. You do that on a construction project where you've got 23 or 25 units and that's half a million dollars. Right, right. You know, so, you know, it's going through the school of hard knocks. The thing that I did wrong, John, was I self-educated. And I'll tell this to anybody. It was the most inefficient and ineffective way to figure out how to get this thing done. I was listening to the guy in the North, the Mid-Atlantic, the South, the West and the Midwest, and they all had a different perspective on how things were supposed to be done. I mean, I remember flying out to Dallas to see some guy I heard on the old Capital podcast walk through. He had his investor meeting for a property that they'd taken over, and it sounded like they had similar scope to what we were going to do on our project. So I flew down to Dallas just to check them out and see what was going on. But everybody had their own opinion. There's so many different ways to skin the cat. And if you don't really understand the frame where these uh, business plans actually work, you can put yourself in a really bad spot, right? You don't know that you can raise the rents. You think you can, but you don't know. And we keep walking down that path of all these things that are challenging or a struggle that you know people who get into this space kind of gloss over, right? They pretend like it's all good. And I appreciate you asking the hard question, because for me, I don't like when people only make it rosy and feel like there's no struggle. And so, you know, it was the troubles with the projects. It's the troubles 
with getting into the space. It's the trouble with being credible because now, you know, you run out of money eventually. It doesn't matter how much money you have. If you buy enough deals, you're going to run out of money. And so what do you do when you run out of money? Because people got to believe that you can actually execute. But if you haven't taken things full cycle and you got that big bump because you got a bunch of equity on the back end of your deal, you don't really have a good story to tell people about the past performance on your projects. And, oh, if you haven't exited on five or six deals, then we don't know if you're actually a proven commodity or that you're going to be in the space. And so it's all of these little hurdles that you have to go through in order to prove to the people who have questions about what you're going to do that you can actually do it. And so for me, I think it's super important, especially people who want to do all the rage, right? Syndications, all the rage. I'm going to go raise all these, these millions of dollars and buy a multi-million dollar building my first time and blah, 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 blah. But you don't have any track record. And I think a lot of people are insulting the industry. You're insulting the operators thinking that, hey, you can just go do this without any training or education or experience. And I think you're also insulting the people who are putting money in deals because you think that they're going to put their money with people who aren't proven. Like people who are wealthy are pretty freaking smart and they don't make wild hair bets on people who don't have experience, just like the bank. And I think this part was super prudent to share with the listeners, man. I would be bankrupt had that bank given me the loan to do this deal because I would have run out of money, right? The rehab, once, if you do a construction loan, once the construction loan is over, the bank is done giving you money. It doesn't matter if you go over a budget because that comes out your pocket. I would have run out of money on this deal. Now I can come on your podcast and say, Hey John, man, we grabbed this 23 unit property in Richmond, Virginia, man. We bought it with rents at 695. Now we're getting 1195 for those man, we doubled the value. We're going to have a huge exit, John. You know, we're planning to get 4.2 million on that deal. We bought it for 1.3. I'm not going to tell you how much we put in construction because I don't want to mess up the spreads when we go to contract with the new group. But that's not the whole story. We miss permits. We miss all this other stuff. And people just don't share that because they just want to come on podcasts and beat their chest and talk about how great they are, bro. Yeah, it doesn't sound as good and is interesting when you're talking about some of the struggles, right? The victories is what everybody wants to hear. So so there were a few things that you mentioned that I kind of wanted to go through there. One, kind of backtracking a little bit to initially. So what was what was the exit from corporate really like? How Did you build contingencies? Did you build kind of a, an exit strategy, so to speak? Yeah, the strategy was I'm done and I saved money, right? <laughs> What I tell people in my coaching program who want to exit is you need nine to 12 months of money for expenses. And then if you are going to be an investor, you need money on top of that so that you can make investments without killing your runway. It's all about runway when you're an entrepreneur. If you know that you're good through this month, then you can breathe a little easier. You can sleep at night. You don't make irrational decisions. And that allows you to be a little more strategic and do things that are best for the business instead of trying to get a quick buck. And so, you know, I had like nine or 12 months worth of savings and I was able to live off of that while I tried to build this thing. Right. And so, you know, I told you I was fixing and flipping. Well, those projects took a long time. And while I did have some decent excess on those, you know, it just took so long to get to cash. And so I had some loans that I made because I was doing private money lending. 
I was able to grab cash from those. I was able to grab some cash from my fix and flips and that extended my runway. Then I got in deals. And then when we started doing our own deals, I was able to get some asset management fees and acquisition fees from the multifamily deals. And then I layered on some coaching and education stuff to try to give back to the community that they gave so much to me, right? I started podcasts because I listened to so many podcasts and I really wanted people to be able to benefit from the stuff that I've taken in and the questions that I've learned to ask for the benefit of the listeners. And then what I saw that isn't popular, but I'm going to say it anyway, is a bunch of educators taking people's money and not helping them actually get to a result, right? And I just got off the phone prior to this conversation with a lady who spent, I don't know, 40 to 50 grand with a group that is well known. And she hasn't gotten anything done. And so now she's rubbing her forehead trying to figure out how am I actually going to get a deal closed because that didn't work. And I don't think it should cost that much. I don't think people should have to go through that in order to figure out if they like the business. Sure, if you're going to go buy a $10 million business and you're going to get an acquisition fee for $500,000 or whatever else, it makes sense to make that type of investment. But people only look at the upside. Right. There's a whole lot of downside where you can drive off a bridge and wreck everything because you're not actually putting the appropriate things in place to mitigate your risk when you're buying one of these deals. There's a lot of sharks in the water and everybody is able to get counsel. If you go into a deal and you buy something that you shouldn't buy, you can't fix that other than selling it and taking the loss. And I don't think there's enough emphasis on that part. It's all shiny object. It's all look at how great our lifestyle is, how much money we can make, and none of the risk mitigation, which is rule number one, right? Preservation of capital. You want to be able to preserve your capital and not go backwards. You can bunt, get on first base. It's great. Base hit, line drive into the outfield. But everybody's worried about hitting these grand slams when singles and doubles is what makes the rubber meet the road. Yeah, I mean, over the next few years, we'll really get a good idea. As you mentioned before, I mean, you've really got to take things full life cycle before you can have an idea of if it was a success or not. So one of the things you mentioned about being an entrepreneur is you have a month runway, you know, feeling comfortable about that. Well, I mean, that's that's a big leap. Not a lot of people are going to feel comfortable just kind of having that perspective of, well, at least I got enough coming in to handle this month especially if they're moving from a full-time W-2 career that, you know, they're more than likely a successful professional. So what's kind of your advice to those out there that are considering making the transition? What do they need to do from a mindset perspective to make sure that it's even the right transition that they should be making? Dude, it's all an illusion. The majority of people live paycheck to paycheck anyway. So do you really have more than that coming in if it's not sitting in a bank? You don't, right? And so I I certainly encourage people to get financially fit, but in the beginning stages of entrepreneurship and when you do erratic things like I did and you don't have something figured out and vetted and a good plan in place, you end up trying to build a plane while you're falling out of the sky. I mean, it just is what it is. I don't encourage that for anybody, especially if you can be more deliberate in your approach. And, but I just didn't know who to talk to or, what questions to ask in order to make sure that I had a nice soft landing. And I don't know if you actually need a soft landing. I think you can do it, but I don't think that that's a prerequisite for you making it. But, you know, we put together a 15 point checklist for people who want to exit the matrix. It goes through everything from the conversations with people that you should have to figuring out how you're going to get some income in the door. Because if you're not a sales professional and it's good to know people like you, because 
you can see the difference in the people who know how to sell and they get that traction quickly build rapport versus the operators or the technical folks who are more interested in handling the widget and kind of managing that process and not actually doing the soft skills of connecting with people and getting them to trust in you. Figuring out how to develop those skills before you get out, because it's great that you have this great service or product, but if nobody knows about it, then there's going to be no transactions and no transactions means that your business is going to die. Yeah, no, that that's great advice. Who Who's helped you along the way? Who have you really kind of leaned upon? I mean, you talked about yourself kind of jumping in head first, but who's really lent a hand up and, and helped bring you along to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, just at the highest level, it would have to talk about my lady, right? She, when I came home and said, hey, I, I'm not going back. Like, I'm done. I'm out. She said, okay, what are you going to do? And so I'm full-time in real estate. I'm going to go hard at it. And she's like, okay, what do you need? And I was like, I don't know that I need anything right now, but other than, you know, you to be okay with it. And she was like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I laugh with her all the time now because I was like, look, if you decide that you don't love me or want to be around me anymore, then I'm going to be under a bridge because I don't qualify for our apartments, right? I can't go into the property manager's office with my stuff and say, hey, I need to lease an apartment here. I, I don't qualify. And so she gets really irritated with me when I say that. But the fact of the matter is knowing that I had a base gave me the courage to go do the other stuff because now I wasn't worried about if I was going to be able to eat or if I was going to have a place to sleep because those things were taken care of. And so then we were able to go to the next level. And I remember distinctly after doing, I don't know, something downstairs one night, probably on a conference call or something, and walking upstairs and seeing her licking envelopes and putting stamps on them for a mailing campaign that I had printed out and was getting ready to stuff envelopes on. And that was a point I knew, like, I've got to be successful because this person believes in me more than anybody else in the world. And not only that, but they're willing to do what they can in order to help me move forward. And so that was like super exciting for me because I can't really think of a time other than my mom where I had a situation where people were, you know, that supportive. And then I, I did eventually move into a space where I had a coach and he was really working with me, not so much on the real estate stuff, but just on perspective in life. You know, when you have those big experiences and you decide, hey, I'm going to flip everything on his head. I'm going to start questioning stuff. You need somebody to walk that journey with you because um, it's kind of hard to be self-aware without any outside perspective. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I mean, it's great having those around you close to really empower you and, and really push you along. And then, you know, then you all of a sudden get that burning desire and in wanting to push forward because you're seeing them being supportive of you. So I think that's so important and so great that you've been able to have that, um, you know, from those close to you and around you. So how would you have changed if you had to go back today and do the entire transition again, what would you do out there to change kind of how you went about it and, and, you know, could you have expedited anything in your learning curve? Yeah. If, if it was available and I don't, I still don't think it's available except for what we offer, but if I could do it all over again, I would have got formalized education, right? I would have had somebody curate the content for me. So I had a base so I could have condensed a lot of the time. Again, I was listening to 40 hours of content a week, man. Like that's a grind. And after you get through a lot of it, you're listening to 40 hours of content to get 40 minutes of new stuff. 
And, you know, just the return on time, the diminishing returns that come with that are pretty heavy. And it, for me, it's super frustrating. So one, I would get some formalized education or have somebody looking over my shoulder to help me avoid some of the mistakes. Two, I probably would have done something to get more income coming in outside of my day job because the drop was so drastic, right? I was making really decent money for what I was doing. I was running a $20 million business, right? So to go from that to zero was painful, right? And now it's like, okay, you see what's in the savings account or you see what's in the checking account and you see every month that it's dropping and oh, you got to take care of this or take care of that for the business because you didn't plan for this expense or that expense. It's like, okay, nothing's coming in. Everything's going the wrong way for a while. And then eventually it starts to come back. But with all the stuff going the wrong way, it starts to pick at you. And it's like, okay, am I going to run out of runway, right? I got to get the plane off the ground. I got to get the plane off the ground. And fortunately, we were able to get the plane off the ground, but it wasn't without you know, loss of sleep and stress and gaining weight because I'm eating like trash and all the other stuff that came with that. And I think probably the final thing I would have done if I could do it all over again would be to be more vocal about who I am and what I'm about. When you go back and you look at my social media profile, I didn't tell anybody about what I was doing. I didn't tell anybody about my track record. It just kind of like overnight success. Here I am. I'm doing all these things out of kind of nowhere. And so involving people on the journey, I think would have been really valuable because then I would have more reach. And then I think that reach would have done more from a a capacity standpoint when I'm looking for people to partner with and so on and so forth. Absolutely. I mean, the journey is such a big portion of all of what we're doing. And also, you know, selfishly from a marketing perspective, that's what people really want to see and understand is, hey, Jerome did this. How can I go and replicate that process? And, you know, how can I learn from the mistakes that he made so that I can make it a little bit more efficient and and get there a little bit faster? So, I mean, you've got a lot going on. I mean, you're doing coaching, you're doing asset management, you're taking down deals. How has is, how is your income diversification helped your life and, and made it simpler. So if one of those streams were to turn off, you'd still, like you said, be able to, you know, make it through some of those storms. Yeah. I think anybody who's coming into real estate and looking for cash right away is going to get in trouble because they're going to be forced to do transactions. Right. And that is a scary place to be because those decisions on doing a transaction have long-term ramifications. And so what I would tell people is find other ways to get your income and then enjoy and build wealth through the equity of owning the real estate. And so you want your, you don't want to have to take a distribution from the property if that money should go back in for capital improvements. You don't want to have to take a fee on a deal if you need that money in reserves because maybe the raise came up short, right? So you want to make sure that you've got a source of income and you probably want a few different sources of income depending on what you're doing that will be counter cyclical or whatever else you want to talk about. But with that said, John, I do believe in the one thing. And so I had, I had more stuff going on than I do today. I was, I helped a buddy of mine start a tree business. I was doing still fix and flipping. I was wholesaling. I was, I was doing all this stuff because I was scared that something wasn't going to work and I wasn't going to be able to take care of myself. 
and then I started to transition and narrow in is like, no, this is what I really enjoy doing. This is who I really like working with. And I can do this. I just have to go at scale and make my message loud enough that it pierces through all the noise. And in doing that, you know, I've really whittled it down to helping people figure out how to get out of corporate America, usually with real estate being a part of that and some other type of business skill set. In addition to that, being an operator of businesses, because I don't have any pride in things saying, hey, let me teach you how to do it. And I'm not actually doing it. And so, you know, people that I work with more than willing to open my books and show them where we are and where it doesn't work, how it works. Because when I say, hey, don't do this or do that, I'm speaking from a place of experience and I'm not just using theory to try to get people along the path. Yeah, no, that's great. And I mean, that obviously speaks to the, what we were talking about before is talk is cheap. You know, it's a lot easier to, to talk the talk than it is to actually walk the walk and your transparency and openness just speaks to, you know, the realness that you, <laughs> that you just put out there to the world. So, so was getting out of corporate and exiting and being that dropout, I mean, was it what you expected? Uh, you know, wh- how do you feel now that versus, you know, how you did back then? Yeah. So time and location freedom is the most important thing in my world. And I've gotten that through the exit. You know, I was working 60 hours a week when I had a job. I don't work as much anymore. I probably worked more than that when I got out, but it's because I was trying to get things going and I was probably doing stuff that I shouldn't have been doing. And so as we go through the process, as we get more experience, we get more refined in the things that we're doing and we get clearer about the people that we're serving and the outcomes that we can deliver, we get more efficient. And so that has led to a lifestyle that I'm pretty excited about. You know, I I try to get out of the country three times a year. I control my schedule. You know, you can book with me or you can't. Like I'm available or I'm not. There are some people who I really enjoy and I respond outside of that, but that's because of my relationship with them. And in addition to that, depending on what they have going on, I want to make sure that they know I'm there for them because it's important for me once somebody trusts me, me with their dream that they know that I'm in it with them and that they're going to get the support that they need in order to be successful at it. So, you know, it's better than I expected, but it wasn't at first. And a big part of that is I didn't have a good plan. Right. And so I I struggled and floundered around trying to figure out what was going to work and how it was going to work. That's awesome. No, no, absolutely. What advice would you give to people that are out there that are trying to build that diversified income stream outside of just either the W-2 job or or the, you know, the work that they're doing? Yeah, I think step one is going to be make sure that there's something tangible to what you're doing, right? Look for things that are going to make the world a better place and not just a widget right? There's, there's drop shipping, like let's sell t-shirts online. Like, yeah, you can do that, but it's not making the world a better place, right? Figure out ways where you can make an impact and then figure out how to solve a small problem in that space. And then look for bigger problems to solve because the amount of comp that you get is tied to the size of the problem that you're solving. And that will determine kind of the lifestyle that you want to live. And it's also going to be something that's compelling. This work isn't always rewarding. And so you've got to be on a mission. And that mission has to be something that drives and pulls and compels you to go to that next space. 
That's awesome. No, that, that's great advice. All right. So, well, it's been a great interview, but we're going to wrap up with the contrarian three pack. So, um, what would you say the most contrarian investment is within your portfolio that you made in your career? Oh, man. Contrarian. You know, I did some stuff in the stock market, but it's got to be apartments, right? Like, I like small apartments, right? And I say small, I don't really like small, I like medium sized apartments. But the smallest apartment in our portfolio, we're getting ready to triple people's money, right? We're, we're getting ready to sign the contract. And, you know, we've had it for two years and we've renovated two of the eight units. That for me is extremely exciting because everybody wants to go big, but on a percent return, I think we're going to win and we're going to win in a major way. So, you know, I'm just encouraging people to, if everybody's running to it, like, don't be part of the herd, guys. Like, there's got to be other things. And I say this all the time, right? If there's 2,200 unit buildings in your city, I can promise you there's probably 220 unit buildings in your city that nobody's chasing after. And if you can go grab those, execute a business plan against them, establish a track record, then you'll be a great person to go do those 200 unit buildings because there's a lot of people who are going to be lining up and wanting to put money with you. Yeah. Well, I would say you triple someone's money in three, you know, in, in two years, I would say that's a pretty good win. So, and probably at the time when you were purchasing that apartments were a lot more contrarian than they are today, <laughs> obviously with multifamily being on the top of so many people's mind, what's your favorite activity to do with your friends and family outside of work? Yeah, I love caves. So when we go away, a lot of times we'll end up in the Caribbean and we'll go into wild caves and check out stuff. It's, uh, it's super fun. That's awesome. What actions either within work or within family offer you the most fulfillment in life? I, I love hanging out with my girls. Like they are my favorite people in the world. And we have these amazing conversations and just to see the innocence and their desire for the world to be a good place and for people to be nice. It's just refreshing because we go out into the world and you're worried about people taking advantage of you or trying to manipulate you and all this other stuff. And they're having conversations with me. I remember Malia and I are standing in the basement of the World Trade Center Memorial and she sees the fire truck that's all burned up. And she's like, why would anybody, why would they let them fly a plane into the building? And then she starts problem solving, trying to figure out how to get the people out the building and not die in the rubble. And when she realized that like, you can't just stop all of that, you can't fix everything. You, she lost some of her innocence in the space, but the fact of the matter was that she desired a world where stuff like that doesn't happen. And so for me, I wanna do what I can to make the world a great place so that she can actually live in some of that nirvana that she is hoping for. Yeah, man. No, that's awesome. And I mean, your daughters, just as this is my girls are a reflection of ourselves, right? So I think they're, they're off to a great start and excited to see where, where they end up, you know, on the trajectory they're on. So, all right, man, well, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. How can the listeners out there get in touch with you? Yeah, man. If they're interested in learning more about me, hit up jeromemyers.co, J-E-R-O-M-E-M-Y-E-R-S.co. You can find out about our coaching stuff. You can find out about all of our apartments, find our podcasts and our live events. And then if you want to connect on social, I'm on LinkedIn all the time, Jerome Myers in Greensboro, North Carolina. Sounds good. All right. Well, I know you're going to get a lot of outreach out of this. And uh, obviously the one and only, I'm glad you sat down, joined me today. Appreciate the time. And I look forward to staying in touch. Talk to you soon, man.
Stay contrarian, John. <laughs> All right, man. See you later. Thank you for listening to Contrarian Cashflow. I would greatly appreciate it if you left an honest review, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share with someone you feel would find value. Until next time, think different, earn different, live fulfilled.